This is Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Hi, and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show on UK Health Radio, your global, real, feel-good radio station. First of all, what is this? Yes, certainly food poisoning is common. Chest infections, uh, sore throats, earaches, uh, skin infections, urinary problems, broken limbs, tummy pain, back pain. This is a list from Dr. Hilary Jones of ailments that he has treated his patients for when they've come home from holiday. So we're going to get some advice from him on how not to get sick on holiday and also talk about some of the ailments that you can actually pick up on holiday. And some of it's a little bit gruesome, so be warned. Then we hear from dietitian Sophie Medlin about what a dietitian does, how to get good advice and treatment if you have any dietary concerns, but also this. Yeah, I mean, if you are an un- unqualified person and you're selling people supplements, you are absolutely putting some people at risk. Yeah, we look at some of the somewhat alarming and even maybe possibly fraudulent activities in this area. Daddy. It's summer and the sun is shining, at least for now. We've had quite a bit of rain this summer, but right now I'm looking out my window and it's a beautiful day. Lots of us are going on holiday. Some are lucky enough to be going abroad. Not for me. Actually, I'm staying in the UK and I'm going to go to Devon shortly. Looking forward to it a lot, though, I have to say. Some of us have a bit of bad luck on holiday and get ill. And I recently spoke with Dr. Hilary Jones. And uh, I asked him, do a lot of your patients come home from holiday with an illness? Yes, quite a few, uh, of course, uh, and it can ruin their holiday. Uh, Most people go away, have a good time. That's all hunky-dory and lovely. But uh, for those who do get ill, whether it's uh, uh, an infection from um, uh, an insect bite or uh, whether it's a broken arm or a chest infection, um, you know, it it, it can be quite nasty. And and for those who forgot to take out travel uh, insurance, health insurance, um, then it can be a very costly uh, affair as well. Yes, yeah. Well, I suppose maybe a, a, a good place to start would be how you can sort of head this off at the pass. How can you generally avoid getting ill on holiday? Well, I think it's good to be prepared. You know, think about your destination and what you might um, uh, discover when you get there. So, you know, most people go to hot destinations. It's sunny, it's hot, it's warm, uh, and um, they're going to be drinking lots of water and, and, and eating lots of lovely food. But you know, be aware that if if you're eating buffet food and it's been out for a long time and the flies are landing on it and it's not particularly hygienic looking or there's seafood there which isn't frozen sufficiently, then food poisoning, the number one condition that people um, come down with, you know, is going to be a, a potential problem. So maybe drink bottled water, make sure that, that you eat food that's piping hot um, and that, that you know, any fruit and veg is, is, is clean and, and, and peeled. 
I think these are important. Even ice cubes, uh, you know, can be contaminated if the water's not clean, so maybe avoid those. There's, there's no point paying for mineral water and then sticking ice cubes in it, which are from, exactly. you know, out the tap. No, yeah. ex- exactly. So these simple things. Take a basic first aid kit, especially if you're travelling with, with young kids. So things like paracetamol, ibuprofen, antihistamines uh, for allergies and and uh, uh, and uh, insect bite uh, reactions. Sunscreen, of course, insect repellents. These don't take up a lot of space and, and could be very, very useful. Rehydrating sachets if you get dehydration or a, or a food poisoning bout. I think yeah. that's that's important. But of course, these things ignore some of the major problems that can occur. Road traffic accidents can occur. People can fall off their mopeds. People yeah. can get that's chest That's quite infection. a common one, I think, isn't it? Oh, Rent a um, moped yeah. on your lovely sunny island. And, you know, you probably haven't ridden a moped for years, exactly. if ever. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and even more serious things like heart attacks. I mean, heart attack was probably the most expensive reason for a claim, um, according to data collated by Stayshore. Uh, the average cost of a claim for heart attacks were over £8,000. So heart attacks are the most expensive, according yeah. to these guys. What, what, what's the most common? You kind of touched on it already, but a few other common. Yes, yeah, c- certainly food poisoning is common. Chest infections, uh, sore throats, earaches, uh, skin infections, urinary problems, broken limbs, tummy pain, back pain. Um, what, what about actually get if you're flying somewhere? Your flights are notoriously uncomfortable and can be quite stressful, actually. Sure. So, you know, that, that can bring things on. Sure. Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, especially if you're travelling with, with children, have things ready in your hand luggage that you can distract them with. So, you know, a little video game, a little puzzle, um, something to snack on in case there are delays. The, these things are important um, and, and do... Um, they do avoid a lot of problems. Yeah. Uh, well, th- what about the, the age-old problem of, you know, such horribly uncomfortable seats and then, you know, Dad sitting in a funny position for two hours and coming out crocked and ruining the holiday? I mean, that's hard to... Any advice for that? Well, yeah, of course you can. You can buy your uh, you can buy your your neck cushions, can't you? And you can uh, um, you you can um, make take precautions so that you're a little bit more comfortable. Um, avoid too much alcohol on the plane because uh, then you can fall asleep and, and and sleep in a really uncomfortable position and wake up with a crick neck. They, these kind of things sound pretty obvious, but it's Common amazing sense, how many people really? do come down with these things. I think just you know when you're packing, uh, you're packing your passport and your tickets and your cash. Make sure you've got your private medical insurance and if you're uh, over a certain age and you've got a pre-existing medical condition you have to tell them you have to declare that because otherwise it can make your policy null and void if you haven't told them that you've got a a chronic lung disorder or you've had a heart attack in the past or you've got a a low-grade blood cancer then then you're you're voiding your policy unless you tell them yeah. And if you go to a specialist company, I mean, Stayshore, for example, there's no age limit. And as long as you tell them about the pre-existing conditions, they can tailor your package to suit your needs. But it's very important because if you're stuck in a foreign hospital having had a stroke or, or, or something similar, you could be there for months. Uh, the re- repatriation uh, home could cost several thousands, tens of thousands of pounds. Yeah, yeah. You might I, took, I see. I've got some specific questions for the cost for you in a moment, but okay. I just want to hop back to some of the things you can pick up, something that actually you don't hear about so much now, but do you come across patients coming back with any little friends, like 
inside them, any pattern, really extraordinary parasitic diseases. Oh, of course, of course, it's very common. Uh, so, so someone's come back from holiday um, and they come in and they say, look, I've, I've, I've had diarrhoea for, for, for weeks now. Um, and you say, well, have you been abroad? Uh, and they say, oh, yes, I went to you know, so-and-so. And then you have to start investigations to see if uh, you can find any parasites um, in, 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 their, in their waste products, shall we say. Um, and often you do, and, and they need to be treated. So parasitic infections are really common. But also, um, you know, people can, can bring things back with them, sort of, uh, that, 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 that are insects, uh, things like that, um, things that burrow under the skin. You know, <laughs> it, 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 these things are always... Have, have, have you actually possible. had seen anyone with this... Isn't it spiders? They lay eggs under the skin and then this lump gets bigger and bigger and then pops and little spiders crawl out. <laughs> you paint a very vivid picture. <laughs> <laughs> Leishmaniasis. Uh, yeah, these tropical diseases um, are, 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 we do see occasionally. Um, thankfully, they're not, they're not very common. But, um, yes, if you're, if you're you know, wading through um, shallow water in certain countries, um, you know, snail, there are snails there that live there which can uh, cause in, uh, nasty parasitic infections insects can uh, as you say lay eggs under the skin um, and, and cause nasty things I've seen people with cockroaches that have crawled into people's ears um, and uh, have, have, have died buzzing against the eardrum uh, so you know I don't want to pe- put people off their holidays <laughs> most holidays are, are fine and dandy but we do it, it might actually be another another topic some, some of the more gruesome parasites you can pick up while you're away. Oh, one of my favourite books on my medical library is uh, is the Atlas of Infectious Diseases. I, I defy anybody <laughs> to read it without feeling queasy. <laughs> All right, I, I, I want to book you for that because that sounds fascinating. <laughs> but, but just going back to the topic here, we were talking about costs. And um, what, where is the most expensive place to get ill? I, I would say without doubt the U.S., um, you know, if you if you travel to the States uh, and become ill, um, you'll be shocked at the cost of your medical treatment for two reasons. Firstly, because we're used to um, our wonderful NHS and we don't hand over any cash. Um, we contribute to it, but we don't hand over cash. In the States, they'll ask for your credit card first. Um, yep. And if necessary, they'll extract your wallet under local anaesthetic before they treat you. Um, no, it, they it, might have to do a general <laughs> to take mine out. <laughs> well, you know, the cost would appear exorbitant when you go to the States, but that's the, the way the system works there. And if you haven't got insurance, you could be looking at a really hefty bill. I was looking at some of the info. The average cost of treatment, whatever average is in the States, when you're on holiday... £9,941 mm. compared to the average cost of treatment in New Zealand, 614 Yeah. yeah. Now, that's amazing. Yes, an astonishing contrast. Um, it, 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 it's partly the way society regards their medical profession in those countries, but also the actual cost of treatments. And, you, you know, the... the um, the I highest... mean, they're both advanced countries. They're similar countries. Yes. I, I, I would suggest the difference is... I don't know. Uh, it more 
political or, or commercial. It's, it's commercial. much more commercial in the in the, in the states. Yeah. Um, you know, doctors are quite comfortable with the cost of their services, whereas doctors hardly ever talk about money in this country. Uh, it's not just not something we do. We don't ask patients for money. In fact, it's illegal for for doctors in this country. Uh, on the NHS to to, to, to mention money. Um, so that is why we've got this health tourism problem of people aren't actually eligible for NHS treatment, having treatment, because doctors never charge them. Um, and you could argue that that's just as bad, but uh, we're off the point now. The point, I think, is that if you go to the States and you, you're not covered with insurance, you could end up with a very high bill. And the biggest a claim that was made um, for stage from stage shore uh, last year was was a was a bill for thirty three thousand uh, pounds, which was incurred by somebody who had complications after gallbladder a gallbladder condition. So, you know, you could be looking at remortgaging your house. Yeah, this uh, does more than ruin your holiday. Oh, really? Ruin this holiday. can ruin your life. Well, it can do, and and certainly um, people can be very shocked um, and and are surprised when insurance companies say, well, you know, we can't cover you because you didn't declare your pre-existing conditions. And it, it's very easy. Be honest when you when you fill in the form. Be honest with any pre-existing medical. It's there for your own protection as well, and then you won't have any problems. Yeah. And what sort of age does it start to become more difficult to get holiday insurance? Well, a lot of my patients who are over sixty say, "Oh, it's very expensive to go on holiday because of the cost of insurance." But I think if you shop around uh, and you go to a specialist um, company, then you might be pleasantly surprised to say well, you, you, your holiday is still perfectly affordable and you'll be covered for everything that you need. Right. Right. Okay. So let's let's finish with kind of places to go for info. First, first of all, some you know not, nice. Uh, advice and info on things to watch out for on holiday. Is yeah. there, is there an, did the NHS help with that on their website? Yeah, the NHS website will give you information about a basic first aid pack to, to take abroad. You can go into High Street Chemist and, and get a, a travel um, first aid kit, which is very useful. Of course, if you're backpacking, it might need to be a bit more extensive, so you're taking some sterile needles with you just in case you needed a transfusion or anything like that. And for more information on this campaign, the Wish You Weren't Here campaign, you can go to staysure.co.uk. Okay, excellent. All right. Thank you so much for chatting. And I do want to have that chat about some of the gruesome parasites at some point. Yeah, stage. we could have a lot of fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's. Dr. Henry, thank you so much for chatting this morning. Pleasure. Thank you again for listening in to UK Health Radio. And please do remember, if you're suffering from a bad back or you have poor posture and you're just in pain when you're sitting at your desk and you want to do something about it, can I suggest you try out a back app chair? It's easy to do. You just go to my website, which is relaxbackuk.com. Click on the try out a chair button, fill in the details and I will take care of everything and get a backup chair loaned to you for a while so you can try it out and see if it works for you. That's if you are in the UK. Shortly, we're going to chat with dietitian Sophie Medlin. That's back UK. Run by my daddy. 
me very lucky to have an absolutely fascinating chat with dietitian Sophie Medlin. We chatted about what a dietitian is, what, what they actually do, how to choose someone to help you if you've got some dietary concerns or, or, or questions. We even spoke about a little bit about vitamins and supplements and, and the ethics of that whole industry of the supply of these things. But I started off with a simple question of how do you become a dietitian? Yeah, thanks very much. So um, dietitians, it's really important. I think we'll start off by differentiating a little bit between dietitians and nutritionists. So dietitians um, all do a three or four year degree in the science of nutrition. And then like doctors or nurses or physiotherapists, we then go into hospitals and learn how to apply the science of nutrition to medicine. Um, so once we graduate as dietitians, we are qualified to work with, with medical conditions, with people with um, illness. And we often go and work in hospitals, which is exactly what I did. So I was a strange child who knew at 15 that I wanted to be a dietitian. And so off I went to university to do that. So then I started working in UK hospitals and I worked my way up to working in intensive care. And primarily I worked with people whose bowel was not functioning for all kinds of different reasons. And we would have to feed them either intravenously or through tubes in uh, up their nose and into their tummy. Um, and so what I was dealing with, with was the consequences of bowel surgery. So I did that for about seven years and then I went into academia. So I lectured and researched in nutrition and dietetics for five years, most recently at King's College London. Um, my research area is in still the consequences of bowel surgery, both nutritionally and on quality of life. Um, and then now I am a consultant dietitian. I work for myself. Um, I run a company called City Dietitians, where we provide consultant dietitians for individuals, so in clinics, and also for consultancy for companies, for product development. And I also do a lot of media work like this and all sorts of other bits and pieces. So I'm very lucky to um, be able to do what I love every day and work for myself and have my own schedule, which makes me very happy. Good. Well, uh, even though you have your own schedule, it does sound like you're potentially extremely busy. So thanks for finding a few minutes to chat <laughs> to me this morning. Um, let, let, let me start off with some uh, pretty basic questions because I, I just to emphasize I'm not a medical person at all. In fact, I'm a, I'm a civil engineer. So the sort of questions I'm going to ask are sort of man in the street questions. Perfect. But what sort of health issues can you help with it purely with with diet you know i'm not talking about drugs here I'm, I'm talking about some good sensible dietary advice what what sort of i was going to say diseases but yeah diseases and issues do you generally help with yeah great question so dietitians work in a really broad variety of areas so um some, most conditions will require a combination of medicine and nutrition in order to manage them so if we think about patients for example who have kidney disease uh, often when your kidneys are failing you might have to have a specific diet to stop specific electrolytes and things building up in your blood so that's where dietitians would work with patients with kidney disease so these patients might be on dialysis as well they might be having we might be trying to, to kind of limp their kidneys along to get them to prevent having them having to have dialysis and so we would use dietary management to prevent further damage um, in patients so that's just one example kidney disease in diabetes dietitians work closely with consultants and, and gps to understand sorry general so family doctors to understand um what the patient's diet is and how that's impacting on their their blood sugars and their long-term risk of disease um, and now we work um often in in the case of 
preventing type 2 diabetes and also getting it into remission in the UK, which is really exciting. Yeah, um, I've heard stories about that in, in the media, how people have diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and then they kind of, because of they've been very strict with their diet and probably other things as well, they managed to not have it. Yeah, it's a really exciting time for type 2 diabetes in terms of its management and treatment. And it, if the thing that I would always say to you is, if you want to talk about that, you need to get my business partner in, Nicola, because diabetes is really her thing. She's one of the key researchers in this area. Um, and it, nutrition, one of the things I'm really passionate about saying is that nutrition is really broad. And I can talk to you a little bit about diabetes, but it's certainly a very specialist area. Okay, well, maybe the thing to do it is... a lot of work on. At some stage, invite your colleague in and, and part yeah. that for just now. Then we could, if you like. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's diabetes is a really exciting area. We also obviously work with patients with weight management issues and nutrition is the primary treatment for those sorts of things. The work that I do in um, bowel issues is very much dietary led. So things like irritable bowel syndrome, the primary treatment is dietary treatment. Um, when people have got colorectal disorders, so problems with defecation or problems with um, control of their bowel function, often there is dietary treatment that we can use, which is really effective. Yeah. So, okay. So when, when so thing, things like just not being able to go to the loo. Is it? So things like constipation. Yeah. Um, things like um, so, so often I see patients who've had bowel surgery and their bowel function is just a bit different, and they need coaching through reintroducing fibre slowly and gradually. Um, understanding the differences in their body now, how that's going to behave, how that's going to be, reassurance with the fact that it's normal and it's fine and it will get better. Um, I do a lot of work talking to, talking about people's microbiome and the bacteria that live in our colon and how that impacts on our day-to-day -day life, all sorts of things like that. Okay. So that's all very much dietary-led and, and managed by dietitians. One thing, actually, which is a bit more specific, which I'd like to ask you about is uh, vitamin D deficiencies if if there are people that don't go out in the sun enough or if they're from uh, well that that their families might be from India or other other places where there is more sun and then they come here and there's less sun people do suffer from vitamin D deficiencies what what can people do about that yes it's a really common um, issue and particularly so it's important to remember that um, as we, as, as a human species, migrated up to northern Europe, our skins became lighter to allow us to um, absorb more vitamin D from, from the sun when there's less vitamin D available. And the, that's really things like um, the things like the dietary adaptations that we made as we moved up through northern Europe as a species um, have allowed us to remain here in a healthy-ish state. So things like having cow's milk cow's milk has a huge amount of vitamin d in it and that's probably one of the main reasons we managed to survive through winters here and continue to to procreate in northern europe because we had cow's milk in our diet on a regular basis and of course cow's milk is not trendy anymore and there's lots of it we know there's lots of vitamin d deficiency around those two things aren't necessarily linked but of course you know we we look at these things as a population whole um so what we know about requirements for vitamin D from sunshine is that it's very difficult to meet your vitamin D, D needs the darker your skin is. So the lighter your skin is, the, much, the, the less sunlight you need. 
and the less intensity of sunlight you need. But the darker your skin is, the more vitamin D you need, the, the, the harder it is for you to get enough vitamin D from the sun. And of course, now so many of us do in um, jobs that are indoors. Many of us avoid the sun for, for lots of different reasons. So it's really important that people are aware of the, the dietary sources of vitamin D and make sure they're getting enough. And if you are of a darker skinned person, we would recommend that people have a vitamin D supplement every day. Right. And by vitamin D supplement, do you mean a pill or a, some, something in their diet, like you mentioned milk? Yeah. So if you're having plenty of dairy, you're probably fine. If you've cut that out for whatever reason, or you're having less dairy, or you're not having dairy every day, especially in winter months, you could consider either a mouth spray of vitamin D or um, a, just a low, um, low, so you just need like 10,000 units. So it's not one of the strong ones necessarily, just a small right. amount of vitamin D supplement every day. There was a time where we think that we got our levels, as a scientific community, we think we got the levels of vitamin D that people need in their blood a bit wrong. So you might remember when people started, people started thinking that everybody was vitamin D deficient. And actually, there was just a small adjustment in terms of um, what we think people need in their blood, their sort of normal levels. And that probably brought most people back into line with what they actually need. Right. So vitamin D is a really important vitamin. We don't know a huge amount about it, but it's very important for lots of different things in our body. And vitamin D deficiency is correlated with all sorts of different medical conditions. So we know that people with things like depression are much more likely to be vitamin D de deficient. Um, we don't know whether that's because people with depression are less likely to go out and about and, and have sort of an active life outside. But we know that those things are correlated. So we're, le we're learning more and more about these things all the time. Okay. For some of the things that you've, you've just mentioned, um, when you're talking to patients, do you suggest, what you more likely suggest, a change in what they eat or possibly taking some supplements or vitamin pills? What, what, how, how do you work? So a combination of the two normally. If someone is in a sort of crisis situation, if someone has a profound deficiency or there's a specific reason why they're very unlikely or they're very likely to be deficient or they're unlikely to be able to absorb enough from their diet, then I would recommend a supplement. But that's in a completely individual basis. Um, if somebody is unlikely to be deficient but and has no symptoms of deficiency, but perhaps um, has a diet that's low in certain nutrients. So for example, if someone was on a plant-based diet, I would recommend a supplement um, just because the, the chances of them developing a deficiency is quite high. So if, somebody, so if somebody has a reason to be deficient, so they've had a bit of their bowel cut out that absorbs a specific nutrient, so it's unlikely they'll ever be able to absorb enough of it, or if they're on a diet that puts them at much higher risk of deficiency, mm -hmm. whilst optimizing the diet is the first step in order to prevent deficiency, I would certainly consider a supplement in some uh, individual groups. Okay, all right. So it's a, a healthy mixture. <laughs> like everything yeah, else in life. It's, it, it's medical. So it's not like it's a sort of one size fits all approach. It's an assessment and then treatment plan based on that individual and their, their anatomy, their physiology, um, and their disease process and whatever's going on in their body. Right. Um, and most of the people that you talk to, uh, they come via, uh, via a doctor because they have a specific issue or are they kind of self, um, what's, what, what's the phrase? Self-referral, self yes. How does it work in your, your world? A real mixture. So I'm lucky and I, you know, I'm registered with all of the, the big health insurance companies. So if somebody's having a 
um, bowel surgery, for example, they can come and see me as part of the package. Um, lots of, I'm very fortunate in that lots of consultants do refer to their patients to me um, and lots of my expert colleagues do the same thing. So I work with sort of um, people who do specialists who are specialists in the same area as me and we do a lot of cross referral which works really well but I also get lots of self-referral patients so patients who might have been to see their doctor and the doctor says you've got irritable bowel syndrome either off you go or I'll put you on the waiting list to see a dietitian in the NHS but it's six months or whatever else so often um, I will get lots of patients who come and see me who've just decided they want to come and see me and that's really nice um, the work that I do in things like weight management is quite specific. So I don't do meal plans and things like that. What we talk about is attitudes, eating and behaviors around food. So people who come to see me for that know that they're coming to see me because I speak about things in a very specific way, if that makes sense. So you might say you want help with weight management and I'll say, that's fine. You're very welcome to come and see me. Please. Can you read the work that I do around this so that you know that I'm the right person to see you as an individual? Cause I think, there are lots of different ways to manage obesity and the way that I do it, I believe is the right way. And I don't really want to do it any other way. And I'm in a fortunate enough position to be able to tell people that now. Okay. All right. So in a, in a nutshell, how is it you, you help them? Um, so people with weight it's management, probably difficult I would to say in a nutshell, so apologies for that. But, <laughs> no, that's okay. If someone's struggling with weight management, the thing that I always encourage them to remember is that everybody knows roughly the foods that they're eating that are driving their increasing weight. So it's not that you need me to sit there and tell you to eat salad and to eat uh, less fat, have less crisps, have less Coke, have less, yeah, um, drink less beer. Everyone that. knows that already. So me giving you a meal plan of any description is not going to help you because you already know what you should be eating. What will help you is understanding why you're eating and the physiological reasons behind that. So whether it's being driven by stress or emotional um, eating and those sorts of things, and then helping you to, to understand how your lifestyle can be adapted in order to help you to achieve what you want to achieve whilst still enjoying food that you enjoy, still getting the best out of your diet, still having a nourishing diet, one that doesn't make you miserable and sad. Um, and so things might take a little bit longer, but ultimately you're fixing the underlying causes of weight gain as opposed to just putting a sticking plaster on them and giving you a short term solution. Yeah, well, that sounds like perfect advice. So if people are thinking they'd like to self refer to someone to give them help and advice on their diet, um, how can they find someone that in, in gen, gen, general terms, how can they find someone they can trust? You know, is there a respected list? of um, dietitians? Yeah, so in the UK, so it's important to remember that dietitian is a protected title. So nobody who isn't a dietitian can call themselves a dietitian. So if you, if you want to see someone for advice on managing some, a, a medical condition, so the soundbite that I like to use is, if you want to see someone about a condition that you would see a doctor for, then you need a dietitian. So if it's something your doctor's diagnosed or something that you would see a doctor about, it's a dietitian that you need to see as opposed to a nutritionist or a nutritional therapist with the only people who are trained to deal with medical conditions. And right. um, so, yes, there is a register in the UK. There's the HCPC, the Health and Care Professions Agency. And if your dietitian's name doesn't appear on that list, then they're not really a dietitian. They're masquerading as one. So make sure you find out about credentials um that way so that, that actually that could be pretty serious yeah absolutely so just this week i was at my one of the gyms that i use and um i saw someone saying that they were a, were a dietitian and i had a quick look at their credentials and they they're not actually a registered dietitian one of the personal trainers in there saying they're a licensed dietitian 
and the issue it, uh, turns out that he's actually tr he did train in nutrition and dietetics in a different country but he's not on our register and that means that he doesn't have the same standards in or just isn't obligated to adhere to the same standards that we are as dietitians um so if he did something that caused harm um that person might think they're paying to see a dietitian but actually they're just seeing someone who you know, could be seeing anyone at all they're just making up their, their credentials it's a bit like saying you're a doctor when you're not a doctor right okay so actually not only it, well it's illegal <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it's completely illegal yeah. yeah yeah all right so let's go just talk on the about nutritionists because there's there are a lot of people that call themselves nutritionists as well they're not dietitians um and nutrition being a nutritionist it's not um what what's the term for uh, a um it's not a protected title. Protected title, that's right, yes. Um, so, but is there a respected list of nutritionists? Yeah, so um, there, are, there are governing bodies for nutritionists. And I think that the AFN, the Association for Nutrition, is the one to look for. Um, and if someone's a registered nutritionist, that means that they are on a list of registered nutritionists and they have signed up to um, abide by a code of conduct and that they are answerable. So essentially, if you go and see somebody who isn't, who can say anything that they like, if something goes wrong for you, there's nothing you can do. So for example, um, if you go to see somebody and they tell you to eat, a, you know, go, go on a completely plant-based diet and you develop osteoporosis 10 years later, and you think it's because of your, and your doctor tells you it's because of your plant-based diet, you've got absolutely no comeback on that person whatsoever. That's your problem and that's your fault and that's the end of it because you saw someone who's uh, unregulated. Whereas someone who is regulated has a, a responsibility, not just because they might get sued, but also because they, um, you know, they just have that responsibility and that, that obligation to make sure that you're well looked after and they can't tell you things and they can't put you at risk. And so that's why it's much better to see someone who's regulated. There are some amazing nutritionists out there who've done advanced training in lots of different areas of nutrition and who are brilliant practitioners. And there are lots of people calling themselves nutritionists who are not qualified and not credible. And it's just that with nutritionists, you need to double check all the qualifications just in case they are one of the people who is just masquerading. Right. OK. And actually, I have come across some qualifications that sound pretty good when you first hear them. Uh, and I, I endeavour to, to look into them a bit further. I I'm just going to give one example. I mean, this isn't meant to be a nutritionist bashing exercise, but I'll, I'll give one example. It was someone who gave a qualification as being an associate member of the Royal Society of Medicine. I thought, God, that sounds great. And I, I looked up the website, and actually it transpires that to be one of those, you need to have an interest and pay the subscription fee. So actually, I could I could be an associate <laughs> member of the Royal Society of Medicine, and I you know I don't pretend to know anything about this stuff. So yeah. yes, so check the lists and just be a little circumspect and careful. Absolutely, and just ask people what their qualifications are, and just double check things a little bit. But if you want to be, if you want as much, I mean, there are bad dietitians as much as there's bad anyone else in terms of practice and whatever else, but. If you want to be sure, then at least you know with a dietitian that they do actually have a degree and that they are actually qualified to talk about what you want to talk to them about. Yeah, that sounds good. And also, some if a person you're getting advice from tries to sell you something, and that something could be a pill, a vitamin pill, or a, 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 a supplement, or anything like that, should that set alarm bells off? Yes, is the short answer. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
I, I design vitamins. Part of my business is that I design vitamins for companies. I design probiotics. I put my, a lot of my time and life into making sure that the vitamins and the supplements that I help to design are absolutely the best in the market in terms of that product and what people are looking for and whatever else. I still wouldn't ever, I don't stock any in my clinics. I don't have them there, partly because I have shares in the companies. And for that reason, I can't sell you them because it would be very, very shady from, a, from my registration perspective for me to have people in clinic and say, hey, buy my, you, you know, to diagnose people and say, you are going to be deficient and therefore please, you have to buy my supplement. Yeah. is just dodgy ground you know you're in really dodgy territory in terms of um ethics and things like that there so there are certainly you know i see lots of patients who have been to see a nutritionist in the past or been to see somebody um who has diagnosed them with some sort of risk of deficiency and then sold them a supplement uh, at, at an extortionate price and of course that person is making money from that supplement and of course they're going to tell you you're going to become deficient in something because ultimately they're benefiting financially from that and that's not something i would ever want to associate myself with because no. I, I mean that's, that just sounds that, yeah i mean that's just wrong isn't it i'm, I'm on yeah, so absolutely. many levels <laughs> but it's you know it's going on every day in clinics everywhere and now it's become a really big online business as well so people will go to have their microbiome tested for example or they'll go to have their genetic screening done and it's just all happening online and remotely and they screen these things and then they say, Hey, you need all these supplements that we can sell you. And that again is uh, suboptimal I'll say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So is this, obviously this is a problem as far as taking people's money and not necessarily help helping them as best they, they could be or, or charging more than they need to for these things. So, you know, there's an element of taking people's money uh, affecting them that way but more importantly almost is is this bad for people's health i mean are people getting the wrong advice and being given the wrong stuff by this yeah i mean if you are an un, unqualified person and you're selling people supplements you are absolutely putting some people at risk so there are some supplements which you must certain groups of people must not take and it can be risky and dangerous for them um there are other things like for example um copper competes for absorption with zinc so if you take too much zinc or copper you're going to become deficient in one or the other um, and people don't know that and people are sold zinc supplements people take zinc supplements every single day and they probably are taking them for things that have very similar symptoms to copper deficiency um, for example so there are lots of risky practices going on there are lots of people who will sell you literally anything you know i mean we're, we're talking about a a generation where people will buy gummy vitamins that are 90% sugar just because Kim Kardashian was chewing them on Instagram. You know, that's the world we live in ultimately and people want a quick fix to a solution. And, and uh, yeah, I think we, we need to be careful and that people can certainly be put at harm by not understanding the implications and the impact of prescribe, essentially prescribing a vitamin supplement to somebody who doesn't need it. Yeah. And I suppose you could argue that part of it is our fault as not, 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 not your fault or my fault, but as, as a wider whole, the population's fault because people are looking for quick fixes now. Um, yeah, that, and, yeah, And there is not, if you're overweight, you need to eat properly and do some exercise and it's going to take a while to sort that out. There, there is actually no quick fix. No, unfortunately not. And I think, you know, people, people will 
sell you anyone who's desperate will be sold or have something marketed at them as a solution so fertility is such a big market for people selling dodgy supplements because people are desperate and there's no like easy answer same with things like um, and any chronic conditions same with cancer even you know if, if there's anyone who's desperate there is someone willing to prey on them and that that makes me sad and it's it's a horrible realization when you look at what's going on around the world and in the world of nutrition that people are literally just happy to sell anyone who's desperate anything that they can you know pass off right. as being helpful. so maybe 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 that's a bit of a depressing <laughs> i know sorry <laughs> yeah, it, well, it, I, I, I find it very depressing we need to finish on something upbeat and that is not depressing so if if people right think they want some help um where can they go to to make as sure as possible the help they're getting is sensible i think we mentioned it all, already but you meant you mentioned there's a list of dietitians mention that one more time yeah so there is a list of dietitians it's called the hcpc so if you go to the hcpc website you can check out whether your dietitian is a registered dietitian I would say that I do feel positive that the tide is turning on all of these things. So my feeling working with companies is that people are saying to me, no, we know we want to work with dietitians. We want to work with dietitians. We want to understand, you know, we want to make sure we work with the right people. And I think that whilst it all sounds like doom and gloom, my feeling working across this whole sort of space is that people are starting to understand that nutrition is a science. Nutrition requires qualification. Nutrition is complex and that uh, Kim Kardashian has no idea what she's doing. So I think things are getting better and I do feel positive. And, um, you know, just, just to reiterate, if you want to be absolutely sure, um, then make sure you're checking registers and you're checking someone's credentials. Um, but if you have a medical problem that you would see a doctor for and you want nutritional advice for on, on that medical problem, please always see a dietitian. Right. That, that's, <laughs> that sounds like excellent advice. And, uh, a good place to stop this little chat i think so sophie thank you very much uh for coming along and spending some time talking about this what actually i think is a really important uh topic so thank you very much pleasure thank you for having me thank you very much to my guests on this week's relax back uk show and they were dr hillary jones talking about how to keep well on holiday and also dietitian sophie medlin talking about what dietitians do and of course, also thank you to you for listening. That was Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Thank you for listening and please join us again next time.